Sometimes God has to put you on your back to teach you a lesson. You ever experienced that? Yeah. I, I would refer as Exhibit A to uh, what happened to me a couple weeks ago and what many media outlets are calling the great hornet sting of 2023. Um, those of you that don't know, two weeks ago on a Saturday, I was mowing the lawn and uh, I was, ran over a, a hornet and was, was stung by said hornet who uh, was sent from the devil. And uh, <laughs> that hornet, hit, it got me right in the vein and I had a severe allergic, very severe allergic reaction. By God's grace and my barely, I was able to preach the next morning Sunday, but uh, it, was, it was a tough one. And then actually later that afternoon, um, I, I was really bad. My, I had a lot of swelling on my face and uh, started to wheeze, you know, so it was bad. So I had uh, what was my third shot of epinephrine uh, on that Sunday afternoon, uh, later afternoon. And, uh, you know, and so this is what happens. Okay, so this is just how it goes. Sometimes God has to put you on your back to teach you a lesson. So I, I was, Lindsay was in Georgia, and there were others, saints were so kind to be helping keep an eye on me and take care of me. So, but Lindsay knew that, you know, I needed to go to the hospital, right? So she, she texted me, you need to go to the hospital. And I, was like, I said, I, I'm pretty sure she can show you the text. I was like, no, I don't. I think that was literally, literally, my, as my face is swollen up, and I've had my third, you know, shot of epinephrine in 24 hours, you need to go to the hospital. And so uh, I, was, I was stubborn. I mean, let's be honest, there it was, right? I didn't want to go. I, thought, I kept thinking, oh, I'm over the worst of it, like this is it, right? But I wasn't over the worst of it. So it was very kind. Pastor Josh came over to make sure that I didn't die right there in the meantime. And Lisa Syke, our, our uh, dear friends right around the corner, they came and they drove me to the hospital where I spent uh, several hours in hallway D uh, down at Chilton Hospital because the ER was so full that they didn't have any room. And so I was in hallway D, which I'm pretty sure they just named D just to make you think it's more organized than it actually is because... Basically, I was on a gurney in the middle of the hallway. That's what happened, right? Uh, there I was and, and had to get, you know, the steroids and the whole thing. And by God's grace, all that treatment was very effective and we're off to the races. No ill effects, <laughs> but keep an eye on me. We'll see. Uh, I didn't want to go to the hospital and I was dependent, utterly dependent on others to help me in that situation. Josh and Jamie, Lindsay, Mark and Lisa. You know, the, th the fact is, we don't want to go to the hospital because we don't want to admit that we need help. Sometimes we don't even realize how much we need help, right? And so you need someone else to help you in that moment, just like with me a few weeks ago. I needed someone to tell me, you're not doing as well as you think you're doing. You need to go to the hospital. Sometimes God puts us on our back to teach us a lesson. It's interesting in our culture today because we live in a culture that has such an anti-supernatural bias, meaning they don't believe in an afterlife, we really don't put much stock in spiritual truth. You know, spirituality is something that you could do as like an option in your life if you need it to help get you through. But the fact is, most people in our culture don't believe that there's objective reality to spiritual truth or certainly the, the truths that we find in the scripture. And in that kind of a culture, we become obsessed with physical health. Right? And being sick, being seriously sick is like a curse right? that, you would, that you would wish on no one. Because serious sickness is a reminder of our mortality. That we aren't guaranteed infinite days on earth without suffering. 
And that death, should the Lord tarry, is indeed coming for us all. We saw this so clearly uh, during COVID because for many, it was like the, the worst possible fear was realized. You could catch the sickness at any moment and it could end you. But, and I don't want to freak you out this morning, but that could happen to you anytime. I mean, there's any moment in your life that you could catch a sickness or the sickness, and that could be the end of you. And maybe because our culture is so obsessed with health and comfort and not suffering, maybe we've missed the value of sickness. Now, I'm going to say that again, all right? Maybe we've missed the value of sickness. Maybe we've missed the, the lesson that God has to teach us by putting us on our backs. That's really what Psalm 30 is all about. Psalm 30 is a response by David to a time when he was very sick or near death. He either was wounded in battle or he just got sick and was, was almost dead. And the Lord rescued him. The Lord allowed him to recover. The psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving. And as we'll see, it was used to actually foster worship uh, throughout the ages for the nation of Israel. But as we look at this psalm, we can see that God actually has a design for times when we're in hallway D, down at children, right? That he has a design for those moments in our life and that there's actually a good that results from being sick or being near death. So we've got our Bibles there. Let's look at Psalm 30. We're going to unpack this psalm together. And we're going to see how we can learn from what David experiences here and how he responds to his near-death experience. I want you to note the inscription there in Psalm 30. And you just need to know that the inscriptions uh, are part of the inspired word of God. They give us details about certain psalms. And so in Psalm 30, we of course have the description. This is a psalm. And it's a dedication song for the house. Okay, dedication song for the house. Now, what does that mean for the house? Two options here. Either it was a dedication song, a song of worship for when David uh, finished the construction of his palace he had obviously, you know, finally been installed as king after a long delay during the reign of Saul when he was on the run for his life. And so it's like, finally, he's king. Finally, he's where God had called him to be. Finally, he's established his, his house, his, his dynasty, his reign. And so maybe it's a song of worship upon, you know, like a worship service at that moment. It was like almost his coronation, if you could think of it in that way. Or house here could also mean temple. And it may be a psalm that was written by David, but then was later used at the dedication of the temple by his son Solomon. And then uh, it was used actually in Israel's history. It's, it's still uh, used in worship today by Jews uh, celebrating Hanukkah, which is, of course, a, a, mem- a commemoration of God's faithfulness, um, specifically in the temple. So all that to say, um, this song of worship has been used to foster more worship in later generations. And so we'll talk about how that might play into understanding the psalm in a second. But so it's a dedication song for the house. It's of David. Then we pick it up there in verse one. David starts off the call to worship. He says, I will exalt you, Lord, because you have lifted me up and have not allowed my enemies to triumph over me. Again, if you pause there, if you think about circumstantially David's experience in life, being on the run from his enemies, spending uh, years in the wilderness, right? Uh, No doubt being uh, injured in battle from time to time. David here looks back on that and he sees that God has granted him victory. So he says, I will exalt you, Lord, specifically because you have lifted me up. Now, I want to talk to you about this, this verb to lift here, okay? It's somewhat rare in the Old Testament, But specifically, it's a verb that's used to talk about drawing water from a well. 
So it's not necessarily a generic term for being lifted up. There's another word for that in ancient Hebrew that's not used here. This is the word for drawing up water from a well. And the picture is one of absolute dependence on the one doing the drawing. Are you with me? Without somebody pulling that rope, that water is not coming up. So David here says, I will exalt you, Lord. I will praise you because you have drawn me up and have not allowed my enemies to triumph over me. David here exalts God for the victory. And again, at the dedication of either his house or the house, this is appropriate. Notice though in verse 2, he really drills into this idea of dependence. He says, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. This, the, the term here, to heal, it can be used uh, metaphorically, figuratively, and it is in a few places in, in the scriptures, but uh, here it probably has just the, the normal meaning of physical healing. We'll see that maybe clarified here in the next verse. He says, Lord, you brought me up from Sheol. You spared me from among those going down to the pit, or some translations, you spared me from going down to the pit. The point is, if you go down to the pit, the pit here is, is the place, the abode of the dead is the idea. And so here David says, you've, you've rescued me from those that were dying. I was going to die, perhaps. Maybe it was a wound in battle. Maybe it was a sickness. He was on his back. I don't know if he was in hallway D, but wherever he was, right? He says, I was not doing well. And yet I have recovered. And Lord, that was your work. Specifically, verse 2, I cried to you for help and you healed me. You brought me up from Sheol. You didn't let me descend into death. You rescued me. You helped me to heal. You know, this picture of dependence on God reminds us of just that truth, that we are dependent on God. And in the busyness of our lives, I think that's one of those truths that we can neglect, that we can just let slide. We forget that we're dependent on God for everything. David could have told story after story of God's faithfulness in drawing him up or rescuing him in countless situations before he actually achieved the, the status of king of Israel where his life was in peril and there was no guarantee that it would be successful, that he would actually become king. And yet he acknowledges here that God is worthy of worship precisely because he provided for David in his time of need. David says, my life proves that we're all dependent on God. All of us, not just spiritually, but more on that in a second, but certainly physically. Absolutely helpless without God drawing us up. I was thinking about that, that picture being drawn up like water from a well. I thought about that incident that happened back in the mid-80s, 1986, uh, with baby Jessica out in Midland, Texas. I don't know if you remember this story. Some of us are old enough to remember. But there was an 18-month-old toddler who, who wandered and fell into a well in Texas. And so she was stuck in this well, and they, they, it, took, it took them two and a half days to get her out of the well. And so there was this, I mean, it captured the attention of the entire nation. It was a media frenzy. And then they finally drew her out. And of course, there was the celebration that she had been rescued. But the fact was, if those workers hadn't diligently worked for those two and a half days, she would have died in that well. And so she was drawn up and rescued. That's exactly the picture here for you and me. We are always that dependent on God. We are always that dependent on God's gracious provision in our lives. The danger is that we would, we would harbor an independent spirit. This is what this looks like. It's just pride. 
But basically, it's the thing that where you say, I don't need to go to the hospital, right? I, I only need help in severe trials. <laughs> I, I only need help. I only need God's help with the big stuff. Sometimes, and we might never say it that way, but sometimes that's what we think, isn't it? That we've got most things covered and we just need God's help with the big stuff. David says, no, no. We're as dependent on God as, as water is coming up from a well every day. We might, we might mistakenly think that God is only active in miracles. That, you know, in the natural world, if there's miraculous healing, well, God did that. But if medicine works, that God didn't do that. Listen, that's not accurate. Any time we are sick on our back and we recover, God gets the, the glory for that. If the surgery is effective, if the medicine works, if our immune system responds, right? If we recover, God graciously had a hand in that happening. He's drawn us up. Of course, if God chooses to miraculously heal us, he gets credit for that too. There's no circumstance where you're on your back and you stand up again later and God wasn't the source of that healing. We're that dependent on God. I think maybe there's also a caution here just to be careful about, about miracle chasing is what I call it, where we think, oh, God's only really active like in the miracles, and so that's what I'm really looking for in my life is, is miracles, where God actually breaks a, a law of nature to show his glory, which God is pleased to do that from time to time, but it's not the normal activity of, of the Lord to break laws of nature in our regular spiritual lives just you know, day by day. And if we define our spirituality by looking for miracles, I fear we may be disappointed but we're forgetting all the while God is still at work. We're still dependent on him. When we're chasing miracles, that's a self-centered view of God where he exists to serve us rather than the other way around. Now, this healing that David talks about, again, I think it's primarily a physical thing. He's talking about he was wounded in battle or he was sick or whatever. But the fact is, it's not just about physical dependence on God because our physical dependence on God reminds us ultimately of our spiritual dependence on God. And that term he uses for healing right, in, verse, uh, in verse 2, that term is also used in Isaiah 53, verse 5. By your stripes, by your wounds, we are healed. So it's also used to talk about spiritual healing. And I think there's a, a, an analogy here, a lesson for us as we read this psalm, certainly not to limit it to physical dependence, but to say, yes, I'm physically dependent on God. When I'm on my back, I'm reminded of that truth. But that just reminds me all the more how spiritually dependent I am on the Lord. That there is no way that left to myself, I can handle my spiritual problems, right? That we can get this done. I'm dependent on God for the forgiveness of my sins. That's the gospel, isn't it? That, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and you're forgiven not by earning God's forgiveness, but by putting your faith in the one who has. That's, that's the good news, that forgiveness is available for us. Of course, our sanctification, our growth in holiness is also a function of dependence on God. It's not like we're saved by grace and then we're sanctified by works. No way. We're saved by grace in dependence on God and we're sanctified by grace, dependence on God. And yes, we labor, we strive, but we do that not to earn God's favor, but because we already have received it. So yes, we're physically dependent on God, but we're also spiritually dependent on God. That's, David's, that's, that's why David's experience physically leads him to, to a song of praise and worship. It was a physical reality, but that pointed to the greater spiritual reality. We are dependent on God. 
So what should we do? Well, the saints should respond. Watch verse 4. So there's, there's a response that's called for. This is, again, why this psalm was used in this uh, dedication of the house. Verse 4, sing to the Lord, you his faithful ones. Other translations, you his saints. And praise his holy name. David says, my experience of dependence on God, when God drew me up, when he rescued me, when he's healed me, he's shown his faithfulness, he's given me victory over my enemies. David says, that's a reason for all of us to sing praise to God and to worship the Lord. Specifically in verse 4, the end there, where he says, praise his holy name. His holy name, that that is a really unique phrase. It's it's literally the, the memory of his holiness. And it refers to God's character as seen in his saving acts throughout history. So David says, sing to the Lord, saints. Okay, we're going to sing a song. What should the content of the song be? The content of the song should be praising God for his faithfulness as seen in our lives. Moments when we were on our back, but God helped us to recover. Moments where we experienced that dependence on God and we experienced his grace and his provision. So David says, I got a few examples. I'll submit these for the, for the family hymn book. Let's sing together of God's grace and praise his holy name. Actions in real time and space that show his glory as the creator. David says, you have experienced that. If you're a saint... If you're a faithful one, if if you're a believer, if you have trusted in the Lord, you have experienced this provision in your life. So sing. Verse 5. For his anger only lasts a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Note the contrast there in verse 5. God's anger, right, as a holy God, he has anger Right? godly, pure anger, righteous anger for sin, for what is wrong. He has anger over that sin, and that means he's angry over our sin, but that anger is not what defines our relationship with him. He's talking about the saints here. He says that anger, it's just for a moment, comparatively, but his favor, his grace, it lasts a lifetime. The, the, the comparison here is with the time frames. His anger is a passing moment. Yes, God's angry with us over sin, but that anger has been satisfied through the blood of Jesus, and so his favor lasts all of our lives. He paints the picture another way, verse 5. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. Have you ever had that happen where you have uh, a house guest that overstays their welcome? (laughs) We've never had that happen. I've heard of stories of that happening. And here's the reality, right? When, when, when someone comes over and, you know, you, you kind of get a sense by the size of the suitcase. You know what I'm talking about? Like, they're, they're coming, oh, I'm going to stay for a night. And they come in with, you know, the big one. You know, the one that even the airlines are like, well, I don't know if we can handle that thing. It's so big. Or it's just the number of bags. That can, oh, we need help unloading. There's more? Right? Like, you know, the, the oh, I guess, you're, I guess you're staying a while. David says here, listen, God's anger, his anger, which is real, right? But the anger is just for a moment, comparatively. But his, his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping does come. We do face hardship. We are on our backs sometimes. And we might think for a moment that weeping is going to be moving in and staying for the long haul, for the duration. Big suitcase, lots of bags, 
right? Suffering and pain. We think this is all I'm ever going to experience. This is now the definition of my life is this hurt. But David says, no, no, no. Weeping may come for the night, but there is joy in the morning. David says, the hardship, the time on our back, the hurt, that's temporary, right? It's not forever. Specifically here, he is speaking to the saints. So he's talking to people who have trusted in the Lord. But what an important moment. I mean, we see here, I think, the heart of the psalm in verses 4 and 5. And it's this. It's that dependence on God deepens worship. When we realize how dependent we are on the Lord, when we realize that he drew us up, that he healed us, when we realize that all of our provision comes from him physically and spiritually, when we're cognizant of that, when we're aware of that, it deepens our love for him and affection for him. We have this moment where we realize, yes, his anger is real and right and good, but it's his favor that I experience day after day. And yes, I am weeping and I'm hurting because of X, Y, or Z, but joy comes in the morning. Why? Because of God's provision in my life. When we don't think we need help, we actually cut ourselves off from the one place we can get help. Dependence on God deepens worship. The tears, they they hurt. That pain is real. But David says they'll be gone by morning. That doesn't mean we won't face long trials. But he's saying, comparatively speaking, when we think about God's grace and the joy that he gives us, that pain, it won't even register. A faint memory. We learn, I think, some important lessons out of verses 4 and 5, specifically that trials are temporary, and that includes the big ones, even death. For the Christian, death is temporary. I mean, should the Lord tarry, we will die. And that experience won't be fun. But the fact is, joy is coming in the morning. That when the Lord returns, the dead in Christ are the first to be raised. And as you're raised to eternal life, you're not going to look back and go, man, what a bummer. All the pain that I experienced. No, you'll say with David, there was anger for a moment. There was weeping for a night. But the lasting experience of my relationship with God is his gracious provision for me. It's his favor, and it's the joy that comes from it. Trials are temporary. God's character is our anchor. That's where David focuses here. He focuses on the fact that it's God who provides for us. He's the, the, the faithful provider of victory. It's his holy name that we're praising. And while his anger is real, it's his favor that we're relying on. So it's God's character that anchors us in the trial while, our, while we're on our backs. We need to recognize here, too, that for the believer, God's grace is promised to you. His favor is promised to you. It's not like, oh, I'm a believer, but God's not going to really show me favor. No. It's guaranteed by the word of God. We could say that another way. Joy is coming. I think, listen, and I'm just, for the sake of the extended analogy, we'll run with it. There's not a lot of joy in hallway D, okay? Uh, And that night there wasn't. There was some lady in that ER somewhere who was not having a good time. And I was in there for three hours, and it was, it was bad for her. And in the middle of that experience, you know, you're going, there's nothing good happening in this hallway. 
And you, you might feel that. You, you might feel in the midst of your trial, which could be physical. That's David's primary focus, I think, in this psalm, but not necessarily limited to that. It could be an emotional trial. It could be a struggle with a family member. It could be a financial difficulty that you're facing. And you could think, I'm never getting out of this hallway. But the fact is, joy is coming in the morning. And that's the promise to believers, that joy is coming. You see, dependence on God deepens worship. For, for the saints, for Christians, God's goodness and His grace is the permanent feature of our relationship with Him. The permanent feature. You could say it this way. For Christians, God's grace is the last word. Like, that's it. So, yeah, the, 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 the weeping may come, but there's joy coming in the morning. And we might doubt this when we're the ones hurting. We may doubt it because of our sin, and we fear God's judgment. And that's all the more reason we need help recognizing our dependence on a God who is good and gracious. We need people to take us to the hospital when we need to go to the hospital. We need people, when we're in the midst of a trial, to put their arm around us and to say, I know what you're going through hurts. And, and yes, that pain is real. And you just need to know that God is still good. That there's joy coming. And we're not belittling the hurt. We're not pretending. It's, this is not a plastic smile. We're just like, you know, pretend that it doesn't hurt. No, we weep as, as we need to with those who weep. But all the while, we remember that God's grace is his last word to us. And that, that truth anchors us through the trial. We need the church to help us. We need brothers and sisters in Christ to help us when we're not thinking accurately about our condition and about who God is. When we're maybe struggling through that valley. It doesn't mean trials are easy. And that's what he does with the psalm in verse 6. He transitions to talk about his experience in the midst of the ups and downs. Notice the language that he uses here. He's, this is like a flashback, okay? Verse 6, when I was secure, I said, I will never be shaken. You have to read that with that voice, okay? Because that's what he's saying. He's saying, when I was secure, I, I was saying, I will never be shaken. Da, 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 right? Like, I've, I, you know, and David had some victories in his back pocket. We're going to talk about Goliath tonight. I mean, he has some victories in his pocket, right? So maybe he accidentally read too much of the press on those victories or whatever. He said, I will never be shaken, Verse 7, Lord, when you showed me your favor, you made me stand like a strong mountain. But when you hid your face, I was terrified. Maybe David is alluding to the fact that in his pride, God said, I need to teach you a lesson. And so he, he put him on his back. The wound in battle, the sickness, been on the run from Saul, whatever it was. He said, I, I need to teach you a lesson here, David. So the Lord hid his face from him and, and just kind of reminded David that if, if I'm not the one making it happen, it's not going to happen. Verse 8, though, this is the moment of, I call it the moment of sanity, right? Lord, I called to you. I sought favor from my Lord. Can I just encourage you that when you get to that moment in your life, when you just maybe recognize God has shown you your independent spirit, and maybe God's put you on your back in this or that way, Right? There's this moment of sanity that, that he's designed that trial to produce. And the moment of sanity is not, you can do it. The moment of sanity is, I called on the Lord. Lord, I got nothing. I, I, Lord, I, don't, I, need, I need your help. I always need his help. 
But it's a moment of sanity where you're like, no, I, I now realize with greater clarity right, and certainty, Lord, that I am absolutely dependent on you. Verse 8 is so crucial in that experience. Lord, I called to you. I sought favor from my Lord. There was no other resource, ultimately. David says, I, I, I finally realized what I should have known all along was that I had one phone call to make for help. And that's to the Lord. And then he, he, he offers some reasons why God should be gracious to him. Note the reasoning, verse 9. He says, What gain is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your truth? David says, Lord, listen, if I die, okay, and I decompose to dust, that dust, although it still ultimately glorifies you, it can't sing. That dust can't speak audibly. So he says, will the dust praise you? Will it declare, end of verse 9, will it proclaim your truth? Uh, I think the CSB missed that last word. Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Uh, you know, your, your uh, fulfillment of your promises. So I think other translations say faithfulness there. I think that's maybe a little better. Will, will the dust proclaim your faithfulness? The dust is not saying, even though the dust glorifies God, the dust is not going to say, let me tell you about the time when God did this, when God did that, when I was experiencing this, and God did this. David says, Lord, I will do that. So rescue me, save me, redeem me. This teaches us a, a very important truth. Well, it leads to verse 10, right? Then that's the ask. Lord, listen and be gracious to me. Lord, be my helper. Do you hear the grace language here? The, the language of dependence on God? Lord, listen and be gracious to me. I'm toast without you. I, I have no recourse. Lord, be my helper. Provide. Redeem. Rescue. Allow for healing. Allow for victory. I mean, this is a statement of absolute and fundamental dependence on the Lord, which teaches us this, this important lesson, and it's so important, we have to get it. It's that dependence is not a liability. Dependence is not a liability. Weakness is not a liability. Some of us are a little stubborn when we need to go to the hospital. Maybe... Part of the reason we struggle with that is because we don't want to admit that we're weak. If we're struggling with that, God will send a hornet to remind you. <laughs> there's not a day that you draw breath. There's not a moment that your heart doesn't beat by God's gracious provision. We read in Colossians that it's, it's by Jesus' word of power that the universe is upheld that molecules are held together in their places. Dependence is not a liability. Trials are not times when God's grace is absent, but they just show us our need for him. Again, he puts us on our back to teach us something. And embracing weakness is not a mark of failure. It's actually a mark of faith. And maybe can I just speak specifically to the men in this room, Okay. Brothers, our, our culture is so confused on what it means to be a man, what is a man, and what it means to be a man, absolutely. But can I just encourage you that, that Christian men who have put their faith in Jesus have to be men who have acknowledged our weakness. And we can't go, we can't go around saying in verse 6, I will never be shaken. That's ridiculous. You can definitely be shaken. 
by tons of things. True, true manhood, I think, is expressed in acknowledging our dependence on God in faith. You, you want to be a godly man? Admit that you need help. All right, now we're off to the races. Ladies aren't immune to pride, obviously, but it's a particular struggle with men. We need our moment of sanity where we recognize that I can't get out of this bed unless God allows it. I need his grace. What will it take to humble you? You know, what will it take for you to recognize that dependence on the Lord is not a sign of weakness, but actually a sign of great strength? Maybe it'll be a sickness, particular trial. Really, I think in verses 6 to 10, we get a little bit of a model for how to respond to trials. First of all, acknowledge the hardship of it. Right? David doesn't candy coat it. I mean, he, he acknowledges it was a difficult time. He acknowledges also his pride. He confesses his need for help by crying out to the Lord. He focuses on God's grace, especially in the language in verse 10. Be gracious to me, Lord, be my helper. And he actually asks for help. So there you go. Acknowledge the hardship you're facing, confess your need, focus on God's grace, and cry out for help. There's a recipe for reminding ourselves of the fact that we are dependent on God and looking to him for provision and for rescue. In any circumstance, physical sickness, yes. Spiritual struggle, yes. Emotional challenges that you're facing with your family or friends, yes. Problems at work, yes. Difficulties with your finances, yes. In any of those situations and more, you have a green light to say, God, I have nothing without you. Help me, provide, give me wisdom, show me what to do. Lord, I'm dependent on you. Dependence is not a liability. When we refuse to ask for help, it's almost like the trial slows down and gets worse. It, this is an observation by my friend Calvin who says this about this circumstance. He says, Our own fretfulness and impatience under affliction makes every minute an age. So when we refuse to trust the Lord, what do we do? We fret. That's what he calls it. He calls it fretfulness, and then we get impatient. We want it over, right? But when we do that outside of trusting the Lord, he said, then every minute of that trial feels like an eternity. It feels like an age because we're focusing on ourselves rather than on the Lord. And, and rather than acknowledge our dependence, we're stubbornly resisting reliance on him. Dependence is not a liability. Weakness is good for us. And it has... It has an ultimate goal. Watch verse 11 and 12. He reminds us of the main idea here in the psalm and then describes the end goal. He says, You turned my lament into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. This is a beautiful picture of what God's gracious provision does. David had experienced it, so he's articulating it here. This doesn't mean that we always get the solution we want. Can we just all remember that, right? It doesn't mean you always get what you want out of the situation. And it doesn't mean you won't face serious and significant trials and hurts in your life. But it does mean this. Because of the grace of God, because of the grace of God, your lament, your mourning isn't the last word. He will turn your mourning into dancing. Your song of sadness will become a song of joy. 
the, the sackcloth, the clothes that they would wear in times of mourning, that, that sackcloth will be removed, and instead you'll be clothed with gladness, David says. This is where we're all headed, right? Those who trust in the Lord, those who rely on the Lord. This is what we have been promised, turning our lament into dancing. And that equips us to navigate the trial, specifically to its end goal, which is what? Verse 12, so that, so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Brothers and sisters, worship is the goal. It's not our comfort. It's not our success. It's not uh, that we would have the kids that we want or the job that we want or the house that we want, right? The ultimate end goal, the reason why God puts us on our back, the reason why he ordains for us to be in situations where we have to cry out to him for help is because he wants to teach us how glorious his grace is so that we would worship him all the more. It's to show his greatness so that I can sing to you. The, the, the wording in verse 12 on I can sing to you, it's either my glory can sing to you or my kidneys can sing to you. Does that bless you this morning? Your kidneys singing to the Lord? In, in, in Hebrew, in, old, in, the old, in the Old Testament, the kidneys, where it's like your guts, it's like that's where you feel the most is the idea. So that's not a medical diagnosis. That's like a, a it's a, a, a feature of language, Right? So we say guts, they said kidneys. But maybe that's the point here. Maybe David says, my kidneys can sing to you. That's the point. So in the deepest part of my being where I feel all the stuff, so that way I can, from that place, I can cry out to you in praise. It's It's a statement of intimate worship that involves all of our being. God, I value you as greater than anything else. You are worthy of my worship, and I will not be silent. You you saw it in verse 12, so that I can sing to you and not be silent. Silence is not an option here, Lord. Yes, I was on my back, but I saw when I was in that moment of weakness and distress, I saw your grace and provision, even through the hardship of it. And so, Lord, what am I going to do? I'm going to praise you. I'm going to worship you as a result of that hardship. Of course, this teaches us that if we're not worshiping on the backside of hallway D, then we've missed something. Again, doesn't belittle the difficulty of the trial, but the goal is worship. This is why you read things in the scripture like in James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that God is using that trial to grow you spiritually. So I can look at this trial, and although it is hard, I can see the goodness of God in it. And so I know worship is the goal, ultimately, that I would praise God for his work in my life. Silence is not an option. But what about for you? I know every one of us in this room have experienced trials in our lives. We've been on our back at a certain point. The question you want to ask is, have I responded to that trial in a godly way? Did I cry out to the Lord for help amidst the sustained hurt and difficulty of it? Did I allow others to speak to me, to help me in my moment of need to focus on the Lord? And fundamentally, have I worshiped God as a result? Will I testify of his goodness? Now listen, 
I don't wish hallway D on anyone, especially not that night. It was rough. But the fact is, when I think back and reflect on that, I don't think of hallway D in negative terms. It was a place where God's kindness was evident to me. It was beautiful, really. Uh, you know, to have dear saints sitting there in that hallway with me, to have good care from a, a wise doctor, to put the right medicine through the IV and to have it be effective. God's kindness was evident to me in that moment, and I had nothing. So ask Lindsay for the, to see the text. I didn't want to go. But God said, I've got something to teach you. What? That dependence on God deepens worship. My friend Calvin was acquainted well with trials. John Calvin had escaped from France to Switzerland because King Francis I, during the Reformation, wanted to kill all those who were wanting to teach the Bible. That's basically the bottom line there. And so he had to flee. And so he fled France, went to Switzerland. Uh, the Lord sent him to Geneva. He had a long and profitable ministry there eventually. It was marked by significant hardship in many ways. In 1540, not long after getting to Geneva, he was married to Idolette. In 1542, his son Jacques was born, his first son, and he died two weeks after birth. He experienced in the coming years two more children who died not long after birth. And then in 1549, nine years after they were married, Idolette died of tuberculosis. Nine years of brutal hardship. Along the way, and continuing for the rest of his life, Calvin suffered severe migraines. He had a very weak stomach and could only eat one meal a day because of the pain that it caused him. He had colic, he constantly coughed up blood, struggled with gout, hemorrhoids, and kidney stones, which he passed without medical care, which you can just imagine how fun that would be. It was rough. I mean, life in the, 16, in the 1500s was rough anyway, but it was particularly rough for him. In his comments on Psalm 30, this is what he concludes. My tongue shall not be mute or deprive God of his due praise. It shall, on the contrary, devote itself to the celebration of his glory. Maybe God's sovereign, perfect plan doesn't include easy days for us all the time. There are days when God is ordained to put you on your back. But when he does it, he does it for a reason. He does it to remind us how dependent we are on him. He does it to remind us of that spiritual truth that we're always dependent on him for his grace. And he does it so that ultimately we would worship him all the more. The question is, will we learn the lesson? Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us in this way? Lord, again, we pause this morning and we worship you. Lord, there are so many here who I know have experienced uh, much more difficult trials um, than I have experienced and Lord, I thank you that I have heard them testify of your goodness. Not belittling the hardship of it, but recognizing, Lord, that those times when we're on our backs are times when we are reminded of how dependent we are on you. Lord, help us as we listen to the heart of David in Psalm 30. Help us to respond with worship, to sing, to sing of your holy name. To be reminded, Lord, that your anger, it's for a moment, but your favor lasts a lifetime. That you do turn mourning into dancing. And that ultimately we will all experience that. 
Lord, I pray for those who haven't trusted in you. Lord, and I pray that they would hear in this psalm a warning that without trusting in you, there is no hope for joy in the morning. That the lament will continue to be lament forever. So Lord, we pray that you would be glorified by even calling those to yourself who haven't trusted in you yet. Lord, I pray as we, we generally struggle with pride and acknowledging weakness. And Lord, help us to just be mindful of the fact that we're always dependent on you. And to acknowledge that weakness is not in some way a, 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 a fault or a negative, but rather it's a sign of, of faith in you. Lord, thank you for reminding us how fragile we really are. And we pray that as we experience hardship and see how dependent we are on you, that that dependence would deepen our worship of you, that you would get the glory. And Lord, we look forward to the day when trials are no more, but in the meantime, help us to trust you in the midst of them. We ask these things because of Jesus, who endured the greatest trial for us. Amen.